Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello, everybody. This is Jennifer Matteris, and let's just take care of a little bit of housekeeping before I start in on the episode. First of all, now that I've lost my day job, it's a really great time to help support the podcast. You can do so through the podcast's Patreon, which is linked on our Facebook page. Through Patreon, you can help the podcast one episode at a time, even if you can only afford a dollar an episode. That amount adds up, and any little bit helps, especially now. If you'd like to support the podcast with a one-time donation, you can do so through PayPal at disasterarea at mail.com. That's mail, not Gmail. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can rate and review on iTunes or whichever other podcast app you might listen to the show through, or you can spread the word. Since I don't have a day job right now, I'm working very hard to try and get more episodes out, especially the series coming up in August. Second, I would just like to say a sad goodbye to Chester Bennington, the lead singer of Linkin Park, who we lost to depression on July 20th. I couldn't tell you how many times I listened to Hybrid Theory on a loop back when it came out, and like a lot of people, I never knew what Chester Bennington was going through behind the scenes. Rest in peace, Chester. And finally for this episode, as in the Hillsborough episode, when I say football, I mean soccer. Thanks for listening, guys, and welcome to Disaster Area. Episode 42, The Bradford City Stadium Fire, May 11th, 1985, 56 deceased, 265 injured. Football is the most popular sport in the world, so it's unsurprising that a lot of sports-related disasters involve football stadiums or football teams. The earliest football disaster occurred at Ibrooks Park on April 5, 1902, when the upper section of the Western Tribune stand collapsed during the British Home Championship, killing 25 and injuring hundreds. The following year, the newly formed Bradford City Football Club would begin to play at Valley Parade. Over 80 years later, they would still call Valley Parade home on the day when another football tragedy struck right before the eyes of everyone in the stadium. Just like in so many other cities in Britain, Bradford supported its local team even when it didn't give them much reason to. After forming in 1903 and entering the second division, the club won the FA Cup in 1911. But for about seven decades after that win, Bradford City hadn't done anything of merit except pass hands in times of financial strain. In fact, by the time the 1984-1985 season rolled around, Bradford City was still struggling to regain its footing after a dire financial situation resulted in the club needing to be bailed out by a pair of local businessmen. As the club's standing began to flag, its creditors were owed almost... 375,000 pounds, excuse me. It looked as though it might be the end of football in Bradford City. The official receiver stated, I can't say why the club ran for so long. For a number of years, its accounts have shown it to be insolvent. Bradford raised 55,000 pounds. Player Bobby Campbell was sold for 70,000 pounds. And Bradford City's council bought the stadium from the receiver for 220,000 pounds. At first, Jack Tordoff and Stafford Hegenbotham, probably the most British name I've ever heard that isn't hyphenated, had been bidding for ownership of the club individually, but they soon found it a much better alternative to join forces and buy their way in as a pair into 87% of the club in 1983. They each paid £30,000, which is a little under £100,000 today. That's not bad for an entire football club. Once they owned the club, Hagenbotham and Tordoff raised the admission prices 50p, which lowered the crowds for a while, but inevitably raised enough money to start pulling the club out of the red. Bradford City was so happy to still have a team, they were just 
happy to have a 1983-1984 season at all, even if they didn't do quite so well. They got Babby Campbell back, and before long they started winning. However, they came up just short of a playoff berth at the end of the season. Still, it was the best finish for the team in 26 years. The 1984-1985 season, they presumed, would be better. While Stafford Heckenbotham lucked out in what he paid to purchase the team with Tordoff, he'd encountered his own spots of bad luck in the past. See, Heckenbotham's businesses just kept burning down. Between May of 1967 and June of 1981, eight of Heckenbotham's businesses burned, some of them to the ground like T-Bro Toys in December of 1977. Unsurprisingly, with each fire came a substantial insurance payout. So at least he had that to fall back on. But at Valley Parade, there was work to do. Heggenbotham and Tordoff soon got an estimate from a contractor on replacing the roof, for one thing. There was also a pair of letters the club received from the fire brigade in 1984, stating in one, The timber construction is a fire hazard, and in particular, there is a buildup of combustible materials in the voids beneath the seats. A carelessly discarded cigarette could give rise to a fire risk. The fire brigade never did follow up to see if the club did anything about the fire risk at the stand. It wasn't the first letter the club received either. A health and safety executive wrote to the previous board regarding evacuation procedures for the main stand. According to Tordoff, because this was received by the previous board, he and Hagenbotham simply never heard about it. When it was built in 1886, Valley Parade the stadium in question, was to be used by Manningham Rugby Football Club, but it switched over once Bradford City FC took over the stadium in 1903. The stadium may have still looked quite good in 1903, but as the decades passed, it grew to show its age. Part of the blight that was Valley Parade was the main stand, which had been built into the slope of the hillside alongside South Parade Street. Because of the slope, it was Built on, the aisles and steps to reach your seats could be very steep. Now, when you arrived at the stand before a game, you approached the rear of the stand on South Parade, which at the time was a dead-end street still lined with Victorian cobblestones which ran behind the stand. You would find yourself facing down a brick wall with two sets of four little huts, brick huts, sticking out of the wall with some space between them. Both held four waist-high turnstiles apiece, and the set toward the G-block end, which was the far end, also led to the club shop, uh, storeroom, and restrooms. Between the two sets of turnstiles were a pair of double wooden doors in the brick wall, which could be opened after the game to allow people to leave more easily. Once you got through the turnstiles, though, you entered the low, dark corridor which ran the length of the stand. The corridor was fairly narrow, only four feet wide. On the side of the corridor facing the pitch, a high wine-colored partition, it was wine-colored because that was their colors, uh, claret and amber, separated those in the corridor from those in the seating area. Now, the description of the rear corridor reminds me of the last sporting event I went to at the Mohegan Sun Arena in April for a Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins hockey game. The corridor encircling the arena was wide enough so that when you go out during the break to buy Dippin' Dots at one of the stands, like I did, come on, they're Dippin' Dots, the corridor fits the Dippin' Dots stand, a utensil stand on the opposite side, and still has space for people to pass by in the middle. Yet even so, at the end of the game when everybody left all at once, you could barely move. In fact, I walked out the first door to the outside I reached and simply walked all the way around the building to get to my car. And everyone in the, that crowd was calm and happy after a winning game. If everyone had been upset or rushing to leave in an emergency, it might have been a different story. Now the stand followed the long edge of the pitch, with the players' clubhouse to the left of the stand and the cop end to the right if you were standing in the center of the field looking toward it. From that same spot, you would be able to see the sections from A to G set up from left to right, your left to your right. The section across the top contained wooden seating, while the strip of seating in the middle had plastic seating. At the bottom of the stand in one long aisle was a concrete terrace consisting of a few steps much like low stone bleachers for standing. 
There were only two small entrances to get down to this area at the bottoms of where the E and F blocks and B and C blocks met. Another big downside to the stand was that no matter where you sat, you were facing these black metal supports at the front of the stand, which were positioned about every five meters. These held up the roof, a double-gabled, leaky old thing covered in layers of uh, bitumen, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, felt accumulated over decades with jagged wood sticking out the front. Like I said, this was not the prettiest stand in the world. The floor of the stand underneath was wood-framed and raised two feet off the ground. The gaps underneath the wooden seats and the plastic seats, uh, the wooden seats were held up by wooden blocks over wooden sleepers set into the slope of the hill, just wood, wood, and more wood. Those gaps allowed everything from candy wrappers to cigarette butts to drop down into the gaps. Decades of rubbish piled and compacted together in the dark hollow underneath the feet of fans who soon realized that what, what that could mean in the event of the fire and tried to keep the stand hiding accordingly. You'd been able to smoke in the stand since the beginning of 1908, so it was only through sheer luck that the stand hadn't burned over the course of the next seven and a half decades. But in May of 1985, it wouldn't matter much longer. The stand was scheduled to be demolished and replaced with an updated, and one presumes less flammable, stand. In fact, the club had already taken possession of the steel needed to rebuild the roof. It would cost 400,000 pounds to update the stand, but everyone and their mother knew it was necessary. Now, prior to the final game of the season on May 11, 1985, Bradford City were to be presented with the Third Division Cup. After a few years of worrying that the club might not make it, Bradford City just earned its way back into the Second Division after 48 years. So, unsurprisingly, the grounds were packed. Over 11,000 supporters were at the game, nearly double the season's average. Of those, about 3,000 people were in the main stand that day. At the start of the game, Captain Peter Jackson accepted the trophy and raised it high to cheers from the crowd. A brass band circled the pitch, and the team soaked up their moment in the sun, tossing the trophy back and forth between them. It was a happy moment for the team, and, and Bradford City fans were soaking it up. They were in a very good mood that day. That game was between Bradford City and Lincoln City, and Bradford City. Uh, but many Bradford City fans weren't expecting Bradford to win. Uh, from the start at 3 p.m., Bradford was living up to their expectations. Of those there that day were the da- was the daughter of Bradford City assistant coach Terry Yorth. While he was working, young Gabby hung out in the players' lounge. Years later, she'd become well-known on her own account as sports presenter Gabby Logan, but at the time she was simply a little girl hanging out watching the game while her dad was off coaching. What she saw couldn't have been very exciting. Forty minutes into the first half, the score was still nil for both teams, and it was kind of dragging. According to Martin Fletcher, one of the survivors, after crossing to the other side of the stand to get a soda from the tea hut, he returned to see smoke rising from underneath the seats in the G-block section. A photograph of the moment taken just before everything went to pot by an off-duty police officer struck... uh, An off-duty police officer shows smoke and a faint glow beneath row I seats 140 and 141. If you see that picture, too, if you look at the notes for this particular episode and you uh, find that picture it is fairly ominous I'm not exactly sure that I wouldn't have said okay well I'm going to leave now looking at this particular image it's these very cheap looking wooden seats and this glow underneath and just tendrils of smoke are starting to come up and you can realize fairly quickly that it's probably a good idea to get out of there but The fans were still feeling the good cheer of being at the game and having just won the cup, and there was this lack of fear over the small size of the fire. People were chanting, piss it out, piss it out, piss it out, just like you would expect sports fans to do. There were no extinguishers in the rear corridor, which was an effort to keep vandals from playing with them. So anyone who went looking for one would find themselves out of luck. Within minutes, a police officer calling for a fire extinguisher spurred a call for the fire brigade, the first call coming in at 3.43 p.m. 
Now, due to the fact that cameras were present for the game that day, this is one of those disasters where we have video documentation of what happened from almost the very start. If you want to watch the video on YouTube, it's in the episode notes on the blog as usual, but I would like to issue a trigger warning because you can see some of these people at least smoking, if not on fire. At precisely 3.44 p.m. and 30 seconds, John Helm, the announcer at the game that day, spots a glow in the stands behind player Stuart McCall, who was throwing in for Bradford City. And Helm says, we actually have a fire on the far side of the ground. The fire can be seen on the right side end of the stadium, in G-Block, in the stand, somewhat higher up in the seats. People are climbing down the seating at this point to get over the barrier at the bottom and onto the field for safety. When the camera passed by the same point less than a minute earlier, the fire couldn't be seen, but what looks like smoke might be seen trailing up from the seating, given survivor Martin Fletcher's account of the day. That said, 15 seconds prior to the announcer spotting it, there is a clear flicker in the G-block seating area where the fire started. The announcer says, that looks very nasty indeed. Understandably so, as we see the fire grow very quickly before our eyes. He speaks about how the police are trying to get everyone evacuated from the seats, and we can see one officer standing in front of a wall behind which the fire is growing. One thing I will say about this particular disaster is you can clearly see the officers, the police officers, the security, everybody who is some sort of security person in that stand is moving fast. As this is going on, those fans in the G-Block area were moving toward the back of the stand to the rear corridor with the intention of leaving through the turnstiles they'd entered through. Many of them more than likely knew just how difficult it would be to navigate their way down to the pitch through the complicated and steep aisles and gangways in the main stand and didn't think the fire would be as bad as it might be. Maybe they would just have to wait in the rear corridor until the fire was put out. At 3.44 and 43 seconds, the camera pulls back and we see smoke pouring in extraordinary amounts from inside the confines of the stadium. The announcer talks about this happening on what was meant to be a day of celebration. In John Helm's words, one hopes the stand doesn't burn down, he kind of says in passing. It's not even serious. It's just kind of, it's, it's serious, but it's not concerned about life. It just seems one hopes the stand doesn't burn down, that kind of tone. As he says this, police are still clearly steering fans down the aisle directly in front of the fire and toward the pitch. The game has stopped as fans spill out of the stands onto the field. Unsurprisingly, the crowd continues to roar throughout this entire event. At 3.45 and 15 seconds, one section of bleachers is clearly engulfed, and the smoke continues to grow more and more. In fact, the smoke grows so much, it is extremely difficult to even see the stand behind it at certain points. At around 3.45 and 15, 50 seconds, John Helm states that a year before, Bradford City lost its floodlights. Now, the camera shows people at the bottom wall between the seats and the pitch clearly panicked as they try to climb over as quickly as possible to escape the blaze. The bottom wall was a little lower than the pitch itself, so getting over that wall, which was a few feet high, was harder than you would think. When the camera cuts back to the fire, it has engulfed nearly the entire right upper quadrant of seating on that side of the pitch and is climbing up to devour the roof. At 3.46 and 12 seconds, the camera shows people tumbling over the wall like lemmings. One man wearing a tan jacket with the hood up and gray pants is literally smoking as he climbs over. As a police officer runs over, the man flips off his hood. He looks to be okay, saved by his smoking jacket. No pun intended. The next shots are of the entire stand ablaze, with soccer fans chanting and bounding around the pitch as though they're having the best of times. The only way this could be better is if they had marshmallows. The problem is that many of them are responding as though everyone is safe, which is not the case at all. It's entirely possible that there were people on that pitch who were on the other side of the field and didn't really realize what was going on, didn't really see the people who were climbing out of that stand still at that point. At 3.46 and 45 seconds, the players are shown leaving the pitch and heading back into the locker rooms, uh, it's in, into their clubhouse. I should imagine there, it would actually have been on the, like I said, on the left-hand side of that pitch when you were looking at it face, uh, a stand, if you were looking at it face forward. And 
it's un- unsurprising that they would go into those locker rooms to get away from the fire. It was separated from the stand. It wasn't actually attached to that stand. The announcer talks about the heat that was coming off the stand. Even though he is sitting opposite the burning stand on the other side of the field, uh, the pitch, Helm can still feel the, f- the heat all the way over there. Ten seconds later, the camera shows still more people clamoring down over the seats. At 3.47 and one second, the stand is basically fully engulfed. The upper roof is burning madly. Fans are passing in front of the cameras, waving to get on TV. When the camera pulls back, we see alarmingly thick smoke rising into the air from the burning stand. At 3.47 and 19 seconds, John Helm says once again how this was supposed to be a day of celebration, but now it's turned into a nightmare. The camera focuses on police officers approaching the fire to assist those who are covering their head as they try to run for safety. One older woman is hurried away by two police officers who basically grab her by the arms and lift her most of the way. At 3.47 and 31 seconds, a police officer is dragging a clearly burned man by his left arm down the pitch. Another officer comes, grabs the other arm, and helps assist in pulling the man to safety. In the background, a burning piece of debris lies on the pitch. When the camera pulls back, burning shards of the roof are clearly visible as they rain down on the pitch. The crowd continues to chant. According to Martin Fletcher, who I should mention was 12 years old at the time, while the crowd appears to be still be rowdy and cheering, many of them were doing so to either distract the cameras to keep them from capturing burning victims or were yelling at reporters to stop taking photos of the injured. Some actually climbed a scaffolding to shake down a camera and make sure that it wasn't capturing photos of the injured. At 3.47 and 54 seconds, John Helm mentions that they've been talking about building a new stand at Valley Parade, and now they'll have no choice but to do so. The stand is on fire from one end to the other, sending up billowing black smoke just as wide across as the stand. At 3.48 and 16 seconds, several people are seen dragging a burned and limp figure across the burning grass onto the pitch. Police gather over a person we can barely see. One man hauls another person by a long tan coat until two or three others, including a police officer, assist him. At 3.48 and 46 seconds, arguably the worst moment in the footage, a man is seen almost calmly walking away from the stand, engulfed from head to toe in flames. A police officer quickly shoves into the ground and smothers the fire with his coat. Others join in to use their coats to beat and smother the fire from the burning man. It seems like dozens swarm the scene in an attempt to help. The man's body smokes as they roll him along the pitch with their feet, basically kicking to get him rolling. The man, Roy Mason, would die two days later in hospital, in very little pain due to the fact his nerve endings had been burned off. The last person to escape the stand that day was Dave Hustler. Hustler climbed all the way down the stand, only to encounter a 17-year-old young man lying against the corner of the bottom wall. He was on fire. The young man, Matthew Wildman, had rheumatoid arthritis and needed crutches to walk, but had lost them in the chaos and didn't have the strength to get out of the stand. Dave Hustler threw him over the wall, then climbed out himself, shedding his burning clothes as soon as he got out. When the camera cuts back from Roy Mason, the half of the pitch closest to the burning stand is almost empty. It's simply too hot to stand there. It has literally been four and a half minutes since the fire was first spotted by the announcers and the cameras. 56 people died as a result of the fire in the old main stand at Valley Parade, 54 of whom were Bradford City fans and two of whom were visitors. One of the few fortunate things was that the stand did not have perimeter fencing like the stand in Hillsborough did. This could have led to a horrible crush, which might have led to the loss of hundreds instead of just dozens. There were seven exits which were somehow forced open or were already open, but it simply wasn't enough at a time when supporters needed all the exits they could get. The bodies were in such an atrocious state that the police asked those who were missing loved ones to come to Bradford Central Police Station to inform them what the missing were to the game, what they'd eaten for lunch, and who had their dental records. Of those 56 were many family members who'd come together and never left. Martin Fletcher, who, like I said, he'd been 12 years old that day, had come to the game with his younger brother, Andrew, his father, John, his uncle, Peter, and his grandfather, Edmund. As the fire began and the family realized they needed to evacuate, John told his two sons to go on ahead. 
Andrew refused to leave him, but Martin went on ahead. Martin weaved his way through to the rear corridor, only to find once he reached the nearest turnstile that the doors outside it were locked during the game through a pair of bolts at the top and bottom of the door. Panicked, he was quickly reassured by his father, who it turned out to have made it almost to the turnstiles himself with the others. But soon enough, the corridor darkened from the smoke, all natural light and the electric lights above smothered by the soot in the air, and it wasn't long before everything went black. Already, those in the corridor knew they needed to get out to the pitch, but many of them soon passed out from the smoke. Martin, who knew the stand well, thanks to the family having come there for years, with season tickets even, was able to find the one spot of light, recognize it as the E-block stairwell back to the seating area, and bolt for it. He scrambled down through the stand, over the walls, knowing full well already there was a drop of five to eight feet on the other side of each wall he encountered, and he made it out to the pitch. He received some burns on his back and head from the heat and the dripping roof tar, but he made it out alive. Other fans who'd been on the pitch ripped off his burning cap, jacket, and shirt and smothered his smoldering body. He was the only one in his family to attend the game who got out. Gerald Ormondroyd and his 12-year-old twins, Richard and Robert, didn't make it out alive either. Neither did Peter Greenwood and his two sons, Rupert and Felix. One young survivor, Carl Hepton, was with his grandmother, Nellie Forster, when the fire started. They retreated to the rear corridor, same as the Fletcher family, then found themselves in the store ro- a storeroom with another man. Nellie pushed her grandson through a window the other man had broken and ordered him to run. Carl was safe, but Nellie did not make it out alive. In fact, 27 of the dead were found near Exit K and Turnstile 6 to 9, where Martin Fletcher got to before he turned back around and raced for the seating area once again. Some of them were crushed trying to crawl beneath the turnstiles. In photos of the destroyed stand following the blaze, the rear brick wall was one of the few things left standing. The open doorways to the turnstiles making it clear just how close many of those people got to freedom and safety before having it smashed away. As Martin Fletcher tells it in his book, there, once he had gotten to those turnstiles himself, he found that there had been a couple of men who had climbed over or under the turnstiles and had gotten to the doors on the other side that were locked and were banging on them to try and get through, but were unable to do so. Two of the dead were elderly fans who never even made it out of their seats. The sad thing was that this wasn't the only football-related death on May 11th, 1985 in the United Kingdom. At Birmingham City's St. Andrews that day, a 15-year-old football fan died when Leeds fans rioted and a wall collapsed. Hundreds were also injured at the stand at Valley Parade as well. In fact, 250 people would enter Bradford Royal Infirmary within the span of five minutes. Many people had burns on their hands and their head, like Martin Fletcher. Burning tar had dripped down from the roof above, and in trying to cover their hands to protect themselves, people injured their hands as well. There were plenty of heroic gestures that day, to the point where over 50 people received police commendations or awards for their bravery and assistance on the day. About half of those were police, but the other half were just regular people who were there for the game. Terry Yorath went looking for his daughter in the player's lounge, only to find they'd already evacuated. Checking another bar in the stand, he discovered no one told them about the fire and ordered them to leave. At one point, he raced out on the pitch to assist those who were injured. One of the players, John Hawley, also climbed into the stand as well to help fans escape. Over 40 police officers were injured in the, in the line of duty and, helping support, and were helping supporters escape the confusing maze of the stand's seating area. Like I said, that's one thing that you do see in that video that is just very, very, just, it's very stunning is to see just how many police officers were there to assist all those people already from the very start. The fire brigade arrived four minutes after they were called, but the fire devoured the stand so quickly they arrived to a wild inferno. What was left looked as though a bomb had been dropped on the stand. A gutted black shell with its roof having evaporated, snapped black support beams still spaced every five meters or so in front of the stand, the rear brick wall flaming the blackened warped metal of turnstiles and barstools. Two days after the fire, Home Secretary Leon Britton announced a public inquiry which would be held to determine the cause of the fire. It also, I believe, addressed the death at the Birmingham City 
stadium, but it was obviously more focused on the fire at Valley Parade. On May 23rd, Sir Justice Oliver Popplewell, there's another name that is very British, began the inquiry, visiting those in hospital who could not attend to give testimony and attending the grounds to see precisely what it looked like firsthand. Martin Fletcher also visited the stand with his family to memorialize those they lost and stated it was difficult to describe to his family his exact movements during the fire, given the destruction left behind. There was simply nothing left. It was just kind of like describing it on a flat field. You didn't really have the outlines of pathways and, and, and aisles and seating to show them. At times, combustible stands, at the time, combustible stands were required to be able to be evacuated in two and a half minutes in case of fire. But at Valley Parade that day, you had your pick. You could go to a boarded up exit, a blocked exit, or a just plain locked exit. The inquiry would eventually reach two conclusions. All large sports grounds should undergo fire inspections with new stands built of non-combustible materials, and where there were still old wooden stands, a complete smoking ban should be imposed. When Coroner James Turnbull spoke before the inquest jury following the release of the inquest's report, he advised them to find those who died, did so due to misadventure rather than manslaughter. Once the report was complete, the inquiry contacted every football club in the UK regarding their findings and suggestions. Of those, only 10 wrote back with helpful responses and questions. Half of those contacted by the inquiry never responded at all. In the end, no one would be prosecuted or sued over the Bradford City fire. In this day and age, they almost certainly would have been sued, but at the time it seemed like the authorities were adamant about not pointing fingers, and the victims and their families felt like they were at an impasse. The courts did find the football club and the fire authority jointly responsible following a test case from police officer David Britton and Susan Fletcher, who's Martin Fletcher's mother, but nobody went to prison. Nobody was punished. As for compensation, 20 million pounds would go to the families of the victims and those who were injured, as well as 44 police officers who worked their hardest to save lives that day at Valley Parade. The Bradford Disaster Appeal Fund raised three and a half million pounds from fundraisers like a reunion of the 1966 World Cup final starting 11 with the original starters from England and West Germany. And if I got any of that wrong, just bear with me. I know absolutely nothing about football. Um, <laughs> a special version of You'll Never Walk Alone by the crowd was released to release money as well. A month after the fire, a memorial service was held on the pitch, 6,000 people attending the gathering to honor those who died in the fire, as well as those who survived. The multi-denominational affair was also carried out in parts in Urdu and Punjabi for those from local ethnically Asian communities. One of the most prominent displays was a large cross constructed from a pair of burned timbers left behind after the fire. Two months after the fire, what remained of the stand was finally cleared from the property. Bradford City FC would play at temporary venues until 1986 when the stadium at Valley Parade was finally completed, paid for, for largely with pub public money. In the months following the Bradford City Stadium fire, concern grew over safety issues at football stadiums throughout Europe. All wooden stadiums in the UK were shut so that safety checks could be done on all of them. Some never reopened. In Scumthorpe, the stand was soon demolished. It was simply easier to rebuild from the ground up than waste time and money on trying to fix the stand already there. Eighteen days after the stand at Bradford City burned to the ground on, uh, on May 29th, the European Cup final in Heysel, Belgium, between Juventus, a an Italian team and Liverpool was interrupted when the fans of both teams clashed. The precise details are a little muddled, but the two things everyone seems to agree on is that the Liverpool fans started it and Juventus fans, threatened by their behavior, ran for escape only to encounter a crush at a retaining wall. 39 people died and hundreds were injured, particularly when the concrete retaining wall they'd all run into collapsed. Even with the ongoing tragedy, the game played on after a short break. The disaster led all English football teams to be banned from all European competitions until the 1990-1991 season. Liverpool was banned specifically for another three years, although it would end up being only one extra year. 
However, the bad reputation as drunken hooligans, which Liverpool received in the aftermath of Heysel, came back to hit the club hard when the Hillsborough disaster occurred on April 15, 1989. Hillsborough was one of the first disasters I covered on this podcast. It's always been one of the disasters that I'm most fascinated by. And it has only been in the past few years that Liverpool fans, survivors of Hillsborough, and victims' families have seen vindication in legal circles for their assertion that the police were the ones at fault for what occurred at Hillsborough, not drunken Liverpool fans breaking down a gate, as the South Yorkshire police asserted. In 2011, Sir Justice Oliver Popplewell would face criticism when he criticized those fighting for justice for Hillsborough. He stated, the citizens of Bradford behaved with quiet dignity and great courage. They did not harbor conspiracy theories. They did not seek endless further inquiries. They buried their dead, comforted the bereaved, and succored the injured. They organized a sensible compensation scheme and moved on. Is there perhaps a lesson there for the Hillsborough campaigners? As Liverpool Walter MP Walton, I believe it's supposed to be, MP Steve Rotherham pointed out in the article I read on his comments, the big difference between Bradford and Hillsborough was that in the aftermath of Bradford, authorities did not wrongly point fingers at the victims, blaming them for the fire. When investigators in Sam and Lorac stand, one thing they first checked into was an eyewitness account that someone threw a smoke bomb under the stand. However, investigators quickly discredited this possibility. Another step investigators took was to set up a mock-up of the origin site from G-Block at the West Yorkshire Police Station so that eyewitnesses would have a visual model with which to more ably describe what happened. The investigators invited everyone who'd been sitting in that area to attend, and most did. Afterward, by process of eliminating the survivors who showed up and the dead who couldn't, only two attendees were unaccounted for. The people sitting in this stand at the time described the pair as an elderly man and a middle-aged man they presumed was his son. Years later, South Bradford detective Raymond Falconer would meet the older man, according to him, who emigrated uh, to Australia and had returned that particular summer in 1985 to see his family. As Falconer claimed he was told by the man... The older man was smoking a cigarette in the stand and accidentally dropped it. When he tried to stomp it out, he missed, and the cigarette rolled underneath the stand, lighting in the muck and garbage accumulated underneath it. The old man attempted to pour his coffee out on it to put out the smoke, but it quickly returned, this time with flames. He ran to inform a policeman, who quickly began the evacuation. According to Falconer, he'd been troubled and sorry since the day it happened. Martin Fletcher... Uh, said that just before the fire, he had seen an old man talking to a policeman saying, I can smell something burning under my seat, but I just can't put my finger on it. He doesn't say if that's the same person, but given the two stories, it's entirely possible that it was the same person that Raymond Falconer described. The man's family, however, protested. They said their uncle never told them any such story and that Falconer made it up. Falconer's credibility was also questioned by others, uh, according to another uh, case that he had done. Because of the credibility issues and because of the fact that it really doesn't matter who started it, I am not including that man's name here. It was more than likely an accident, and it seems like something that really isn't that important. If you want to go look it up, it is actually in the Wikipedia page. It's in articles. You can find it very easily. But I don't feel comfortable saying his name here and pointing a finger. It was more than likely just an accident. And like I said, the fact remains, whoever or whatever started that fire, accident or not, the stand was a well-known fire hazard. Martin Fletcher remembered tossing a crumpled candy bar into the gap under his seat once when he and his father were at a game, only for his father and everyone around him to call him out. The mostly wooden stand could already burn well enough. It didn't need a layer of trash underneath it to work as a carpeting of fuel. All of the fans knew that. Unfortunately, by the time Martin Fletcher was warned off tossing another Kit Kat wrapper under the stand ever again. That trash was thick and plentiful. Everyone knew it was there and no one cleared it away. In the years since the Bradford City fire, the video of the fire has been used to train fire investigators and show just how quickly fire can spread. 
In January of 1988, Jack Tordoff would buy out Hagenbotham's shares in Bradford City for £400,000, then would share, sell all of his shares for £700,000 in 1990. To this day, Bradford City Football Club's charity of choice is still the Burns Unit at Bradford Royal Infirmary. Ever since the fire, the Bradford City uniforms have been trimmed in black to memorialize the supporters who died in the fire on May 11, 1985. Valley Parade is now known as Northern Commercial Stadium and can fit over 25,000 people in its newer, much safer stands. Two memorials now stand at Valley Parade. One, at the end of the stand where the fire started, is a sculpture donated to the club by a West Yorkshire woman, Sylvia Grockham, when the newly built Valley Parade opened in 1986. Another memorial sits by the main entrance. It consists of a black marble surface with the names and ages of the dead engraved upon it, and another black marble platform on which those who visit can leave flowers, prayers, mementos, and the like. At Lincoln City's grounds, Cinsel Bank, the former home stand is named the Stacy West Stand after Bill Stacy and Jim West, the two Lincoln City supporters who died at Bradford City that day in 1985. The next time Lincoln City would meet to play against Bradford City would be in 1989, shortly after the crush at Hillsborough. The two teams came together to benefit those who suffered in a sporting tragedy just as devastating, if not more so, than their own. Martin Fletcher, who lost four family members to the fire, also faced extraordinary scrutiny in the aftermath. When his family tried to steal him from the media, newspaper, newspapers claimed he ran away from his father, brother, uncle, and grandfather in a panic before any of them could stop him, leaving them to die. When his family then released a statement providing the whole story, the media softened on the little hero who managed to get out. Years later, Fletcher would write 56, the story of the Bradford fire, telling his own story and questioning why the fires in Stafford Hagenbotham's other properties hadn't led to more scrutiny regarding whether or not the blaze might have been set. My feelings on his argument are twofold. I agree the police should have investigated Hagenbotham more, given his past issues with businesses burning to the ground. But I highly doubt Hagenbotham deliberately had the stand burned to the ground, at least in the way that it did. If he were going to burn the stand to the ground to get insurance money, it seems ridiculous that he would do so in the middle of a game. He may have been negligent in not cleaning out underneath the stand, and in that case, that would be on him and on Jack Tordoff, but I highly doubt that somebody snuck in and set fire to that stand just to get insurance money. It's as particularly, like I said, in the middle of a game, you can do that in the middle of the night and not have to worry about the complications of uh, what would happen should somebody be injured or killed in the event of you burning down a stand at a full stadium on the biggest game of the year it, it's a little much. Um, I don't think that he did it deliberately. Negligence, yes. Deliberately burning down the stadium, the stand, I doubt it. It is much more likely, given the, fa- given the fact that it was a fire hazard, given the fact that they allowed smoking in there, that given the fact that everything in there was wood and tar and garbage, it was basically a fire waiting to happen. And so I don't think that that Hagenbotham had anything to do with it. I don't think he was a very nice person, given some of the things that uh, uh, have been mentioned in some of the articles I've seen and whatnot. But that's that's not criminal. Uh, You know, negligence is is criminal, but nobody really did anything about that. They could have tried to prosecute the club or the owners for negligence, and they simply didn't. This particular uh, disaster uh, is one of those things where it's another one of those disasters where you go to some place that you're going to to have a good time. And I've covered so many fires where you go to a nightclub, you go to a bar, you go to the circus, you go to a football game and tragedy happens 
right before I started recording this particular episode, I saw news about a disaster that had happened on a an amusement park ride at the Ohio State Fair in which several people were injured and one person was killed. I didn't read the story. I didn't want to get too far into it. I wanted to get this recorded. But that's another thing where you go to the amusement park and tragedy happens and these sorts of things happen. There's another tragedy at an amusement park that I really want to cover, but I kind of want to hold off given the subject matter of the disaster covered in today's episode. Um, If you understand, you know, that I've just spent an hour talking about a fire and then, um, and then I talk about amusement parks, you may be able to figure out exactly what disaster I'm talking about, but I'm going to hold off on that particular one. Um, I kind of want to do it by the end of the summer though, uh, just because it is summer. There are so many things about this story that are upsetting, but I I think that, you know, that video is one of the most upsetting disasters that I've ever seen on film. Um, it is just just watching that fire grow. I thought back to the video from the Station Nightclub fire. You see it tiny. Just this tiny little thing. You barely see it. And when you see a little fire like that, it's very hard to understand just how fast it can move and just how fast it can grow. And it's understandable that you had these drunken, uh, you know, these, these sports fans, these football fans who are sitting in the, in the stand and they're watching their team and their team just won. And they just, uh, they just won the division and they're going to the second division. They're going up and they're, they're doing so well. And you're just in a really great mood, even though the game isn't going so well, who cares, you know? And you look over and there's a little fire, just a little fire. And it's, it's been, it, it's yeah okay the stand is a fire hazard it's wood everywhere the the roof is tar the the entire thing is going to be torn down anyway you know and so you see this this little tiny fire and of course you start to joke around and you start chanting piss it out piss it out and I feel really strange saying that word because I try not to curse on this for this show um which if any of you follow my personal twitter account know that that keeping my my trap shut in not cursing it's very difficult for me sometimes but um it is it's it doesn't look that bad you look over and there's, there's this tiny little fire and so you know you're you're kind of thinking okay well it, it can't be that bad and so you start heading back toward the turnstiles because like on a lot of these fires your first thought is i need to go to the exit that i came in from and this is this is why every time I go into a new place, I know where all the fire exits are. I start I clock all the fire exits. I feel like a spy when I enter a new place because if I enter a new place and I okay, well there's there's one exit, there's two exits, there's three exits. I feel like James Bond. I come in, I know where I can get out in a moment's notice. But in a lot of these situations, you just go out the first you go out the door that you know. And that's why it feels you know, um, it, I mentioned me going to that hockey game there, you know, it's, it's an arena. There are, there are exits everywhere. If you need to go outside, you can go outside. If you need to go out to your car for something, you can go out to your car for something. There is not a chance that you're going to go to those doors and they're going to be locked in the middle of a game or that you're not going to be able to go out and get, not get back in. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to be able to leave easily. Uh, even if you have to walk all the way around the stadium, the, the arena, like I did to get back to your car, you're going to be able to get out. But these people went back to this rear corridor that's four feet across. Now I'm five feet tall. I'm five feet two. That is 14 inches shorter than I am. And I'm a short person. And I just can't imagine how many people you had, you had 3000 people in the stand trying to move their way through a corridor that was four feet wide. Measure your shoulders. Like, look down at your shoulders. How many people do you think can fit 
from side to side in a four feet wide corridor. And you're trying to get back to the, the exit that you came in, the entrance that you came in, the turnstiles. And you should be able to get out the turnstiles. Why would they lock the turnstiles during the game? This is your thought. You know, you can always have somebody standing in front of the turnstile, security standing in front. You can always do that. But they locked them. These people got to these turnstiles and looked over them and saw these doors that were locked. And at the time, with the way that the wall on the other side of the corridor was set up, you couldn't just walk through. That's one of the things about being at that stadium, uh, the, the arena, excuse me, for the hockey game. I mean, if I wanted to sneak around and go this way, go that way, go left, go right, go go through the seats, I can do that. Um, you know, I might get, you know, some hassle, but in an emergency, I don't think they're going to stop me. Um, you know, if something's on fire, they're just going to let me go through. And the only reason that somebody like Martin Fletcher was able to get out of that situation was because he knew that stand like the back of his hand. He was 12 years old. His family had season tickets. He knew that stadium. And uh, that stand, I should say. I keep saying stadium. Uh, it's just the stand. But So when I say stadium, I mean that stand. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he, he's a kid. And so he knew, okay, well, you can climb down this way and you can climb down that way. It's a hassle. It's five feet over this way, you know. Okay, well, if I wriggle over this way, I can get this way. You know how kids are. They can find their way that way and this way and, and all of that. And he knew his way around. So he knew, okay, I see a bit of light. That's the E-block stairwell. I need to go that, that way. And, and he was able to survive. A lot of people couldn't do that. You know, there were people who just come for that day. The average, the average attendance that season was about 6,000 people. And a lot of these people were visitors. They were people who, who hadn't been there before. There were people who didn't go to the games all the time because, quite frankly, you know, it's 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 Bradford City. You know, they were just coming back around. They had raised their rates the year before for tickets. People didn't want to throw the money toward this stadium and this this game and, and you know, these games. And so it was basically, you know, follow it in the newspaper. You know, we'll go, you know, if it's a big game, we'll go. That sort of a thing. And so this particular instance, this particular day, a lot of people were there who didn't normally go and didn't think, okay, well, maybe it would be a lot easier if, a lot safer, if I just scramble down and head toward the pitch. And when you see this video, you see people scrambling over the seats and over the walls. And, and on, on the video, it looks easy. On the video, it looks like they're just, you know, there's not a lot of, there's not a, a far way to go and, and it's nothing to be afraid of. And it's not that. When Martin Fletcher describes uh, the interior of the stand and when you see measurements of the interior of the stand, there is, Martin Fletcher says eight feet at one of these walls. I've seen measurements of five feet for both of the walls uh, of the sections. And so, I mean, I don't know if, he was just, you know, he's just a kid and it looked taller than it was or if it actually was eight feet. The point is that it was five feet is pretty high when you don't have to jump that, you know, when, when you do have to jump that it's still a little high, but it's better than burning to death. So you see people scrambling over these walls and not even thinking twice. You know, normally you might say, OK, well, maybe I don't want to jump over that. I'll just walk around. But... In this particular instance, people really didn't have a choice. And so they are booking it down this stand to get out. And a lot of them, I mean, even going as fast as they could, even climbing over walls and knowing which way to go and, and getting assistance, they were still terribly burned. You had... Um, uh, you had Roy Mason, who was burned. You had 
another man, I believe his name was Eric Hudson, that Martin Fletcher ran into after he climbed out. Another elderly man who was burned very badly. Um, you had lots of other people who, who were just, just horribly burned because of the roof. Uh, the roof dripping down a lot like with the Hartford city fire when the, when the um, roof was burning and you had these pieces of hot tarp that were coming, uh, burning tarp that were coming down uh, covered in this white gasoline and the paraffin. And so people are just, you know, it's bad enough that you're already stifling in this, in this burning tent, but now pieces of the tent are falling on top of you in the station nightclub fire. You had the, the ceiling was just dripping down and burning people. It was melting the lights, all of that. It's just so many things from these fires that, uh, in the Rhythm Club fire, uh, the moss that was in the ceiling was burning and dropping on people. I mean, every time you have one of these fires that kills so many people, what contributes to it is a lack of, uh, you know, it's always that that lack of care about, well, you know, we have standards and there's so many things that we have to do to pass inspection or, or whatnot. And, you know, well, we'll just, you know, we'll worry about that later. And and just kind of a lackadaisical attitude about that negligence, like I said. And so in this particular instance, I mean, it led to the, the deaths of 56 people. There are so many uh, sports-related disasters, like I said, a lot of football disasters. There are so many that I, I want to address. Um, this isn't the worst football disaster by far. Uh, you know, Hillsborough isn't the worst football disaster. There's uh, one in Lima, Peru, which was far worse, which was uh, 350 people, give or, I, about. I can't remember the exact amount, but it was it was hundreds of people. Um there was one in, I want to say Russia. Uh, I'm not exactly sure where, but that was another 315, 320 people who who died as well. Um, you know, there there are some terrible, terrible uh, football related stories. Just because, like I said, it is the most popular sport in the world, and so a lot of people are going to be at soccer games. A lot of people are going to be at football games, and so. You know, I I am more surprised that we in America don't have more disasters at like baseball games or football games. Um, you know, I, I don't understand why we don't, especially considering how badly some sports fans can behave. But um, you know, given the popularity of of football, it's it's completely unsurprising that you would have all of these disasters. And, and speaking of, of of football disasters, that's another thing where I have another disaster that I want to cover, but now I can't because I just covered a football disaster, um, and so I can't cover another one. At least I don't. I feel comfortable uh, doing one after another. Um, but after this, um, I believe is uh, I'm only going to be able to start the. Um, the eight series. So that episode, that first episode of that is coming up. Uh, and like I said, um, I am a poor jobless person <laughs> who is sitting here trying to, to, uh, get herself set up and, and take care of everything. And so, um, if you do want to help out, uh, like I said, um, you can always throw a few bucks to me on PayPal. <laughs> um, but, um, probably, probably the best way to help out is, is, you know, always supporting the podcast on Patreon, a, a buck here, a buck every episode. I mean, I, I do what three or four episodes a month at this point. So, you know, if I'm lucky, so, uh, you know, it's three or four bucks out of your pocket a month and it supports the podcast. And like I said, tell people, Tell people about my podcast. I love doing this podcast. It's one of the few bright spots in in my life sometimes, you know. After a horrible day like today, going through the news, looking at just how horrible and cruel people can be, it's it's kind of terrifying how happy I can be to sit here and tell you all about a horrible disaster that killed 56 people. But... This is sort of my my wheelhouse. 
you know, reading up, doing research, uh, all of that sorts of uh, things. Um, I did want to say that of the sources that I used for this particular episode, uh, I would recommend 56. I read, um, I want to say I read the whole thing. I read most of it, I will admit. Um, I kind of skimmed over most of the other stuff. Um, I didn't include a lot of it. It's a very personal story. I think that's why I would recommend reading it if you find this interesting. It is a story of a kid who was just a huge fan. And and, and his chapters, the earlier chapters about him being a sports fan and being into football and being enthusiastic. I mean you gotta love a kid who's enthusiastic about anything and, and, and getting into football. Okay. You know, he could be a little brat, but at least he admits it in the, in the book. Um, he is very emotional. And, and if anybody is allowed to be subjective about something like this, he is, he is very subjective. It's a very personal story for him. And I, I would recommend it. I don't, I may not agree with him in regards to, Hagenbotham, but when you read some of the things that he found about Hagenbotham, some of the facts about Hagenbotham, he tells this story about how after he and his family went to the memorial the month after the fire and they were leaving. And I mean, this they were at this terrible memorial. They lost their entire family. It's him and his mom and, and other members of their family. And they're all in the car and they're going home and they're stopped at a red light. And they look over in the car next to them and Stafford Higginbotham is in there with somebody else laughing. And the people in the Fletcher's car just, I mean, they just start yelling and Stafford Heckenbotham looks over at him at, at the other car and just, you know, stops laughing. This is, this is why I kind of said he's, a, he's a horrible person. Um, I don't know. I don't know what he was laughing about, but I feel like you wait until you get home to do that. Um, I, I, I also feel like, you know, on one hand, I want to kind of say, you know, well, maybe he was upset and he just, sometimes when you're upset, you just laugh because it's the only thing you can do. Um, I kind of feel like when I go to funerals, um, I'm, I'm terrible at funerals. Uh, when I go to a funeral, I, I myself am the kind of person who thinks, okay, well, if this person believes in heaven and they went to heaven, then, you know, I, I, I may not, I may believe in an afterlife. I may not believe in an afterlife. The fact is, fact is, I think if you believe in an afterlife, you went there. And if you, you know, whatever is lying there is not the same person. And so I tend not to feel as bad as, I don't want to say I don't feel bad. That sounds wrong. I feel bad, but I also feel more like I want to be there to remember the good times with that person. And so I tend to walk in and as a defense mechanism, just start smiling and not stopping. And so part of me wants to defend Stafford Hagenbotham and go, maybe he's one of those people. Maybe he's like me. It's not that I'm not depressed. It's not that I'm not sad. It's not that I'm not, um, just absolutely heartbroken. It's just, if I don't laugh, if I don't smile, I am going into a very dark place and I don't want to go there. I don't like going there. I'm in a dark place a lot of the time. I don't want to go there, you know, even deeper into that dark place at a time like this. And so, you know, that's my defense mechanism. I go to a, a, a funeral and I can't stop smiling and I can't stop trying to make people laugh because and nobody wants to laugh at a funeral so I, I always feel awkward and I always feel like maybe I shouldn't go because I don't want to make feel, people feel bad I don't want to go to a wake and make people feel bad and you know like so that's that's why part of me wants to defend him but also most of me wants to say no no that's I know enough to go okay well maybe I shouldn't be here if I'm gonna be like this um if I'm going to be awkward in social situations and one of those social situations is going to be a funeral, that's probably one of those social situations that I should avoid. Um, but in any event, uh, I would recommend 56. It's, it's very good. Um, it just kind of shows what disaster does to somebody. It shows the horrible treatment 
that the media can inflict on somebody who's been through a terrible tragedy where they treat this 12 year old boy like he he did something wrong for escaping for surviving and it, it's unsurprising given what given what happened after the crush at hillsborough and, and the way that the son treated the the people who died there that they would you know respond to a little boy getting out of a fire by being like well he he ran and he left everybody else to die what what was he supposed to do was he supposed to stay there and die with them was he supposed to uh uh you know remain calm at all times i mean even if he had panicked and ran away so he's 12 anyway um uh i i want to thank you guys for listening again and uh until next time stay safe You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.